This is our theme for the year, Let Us Arise and Build. And the theme comes from the book of Nehemiah. And we decided to take the theme in part because our, our young people and their lads to leaders youth training program this year are studying from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So what I'd like us to do, starting this morning, we're going to take these next few Sunday mornings in February and March and go through Ezra and Nehemiah with our young people. I really love the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you haven't studied them much, my hope is that you will love them too by the time we get to the end of it. It is a part of the Bible's history that my impression is even, even those who know the Bible a lot don't know a whole lot about this. And that's fine. That's, we'll, we'll get to walk through it together if that's you. Uh, so if you're a person that likes Bible learning, that likes hearing about what God has done in His people and in the past... I think you'll enjoy this series, but as always, Bible learning is never just intellectual learning. There's always something for our life that God wants us to take, and so uh, we'll try to point those things out as we go. So here's the plan for today. If you have the outline, you can see it. I want to do three things. I want to talk about why Ezra and Nehemiah is at a special place in the Bible story, because its place in the whole story of the Bible, the true story of the Bible, is part of what makes it so special. And the second thing, we're going to start introducing the book. We're going to talk about some of the things that happen in Ezra chapters 1 through 3. Two main events we're going to point out. Um, two main things that happen. And then last, I'm going to leave us with three quick things that I think we can take home to try to live out what we'll see here in Ezra and Nehemiah. So I hope it'll be a good study. You can see I've entitled this first lesson, Time to Go Home. And if that doesn't make sense, uh, not now, <laughs> if you misunderstood me, if that doesn't make sense yet, uh, we're going to talk about um, why I hope that title is appropriate. So let's talk about, this, first of all, the place in the Bible's true story of what has happened. Ezra ends a difficult time in biblical history. Here's what's happened. God's people have been exiled in Babylon. I don't know what exile means. It means to be taken off to another land. And, and in this case, it's not just I had to leave because things were bad. Uh, the Babylonians had come in to what had been known as the promised land and took God's people away from Jerusalem, away from their homeland, and drug them off to Babylon. This is what Babylon did. They were the most powerful nation of their time. And if you didn't give them the proper amount of money or respect, or if they just wanted to take your land, they would come to these smaller nations and just wipe them out. And if they didn't get the responses they want, they'd come back again and, and try again and even pull the people out of their homeland and take them back to Babylon. It was a, it was a cruel way of treating a lot of people. And Israel had gotten stuck dealing with this. Here's how it had happened, if you're interested in timeline stuff. It happened in three waves, three main waves. The Babylon came in and started dragging God's people, the Israelites. And so remember that. So I have 605 B.C. here as the first date. Uh, remember, B.C. counts backwards. They weren't counting that at the time. We call it 605 B.C. But the, the people have been in the Promised Land since 1400 B.C. So they had been there... 800 years. They'd gone through the times of David and Solomon and the kings. There great things had happened, some bad things had happened. But they had turned against God so much that God removed His protection from them and allowed Babylon to come do to them what Babylon had done to so many other people. So in 605 B.C. is the first time, this first way. Babylon comes in, takes a lot of the people, forces them out of their homeland and takes them back. Um, by the way, that first wave is when Daniel 
and his three friends from the book of Daniel when they were taken off to Babylon, if you're fitting some of these things together. Uh, Daniel was taken off in the first wave. The second wave was just a few years later, 597 B.C. as we call it. There was a priest named Ezekiel that was part of that wave. And the book of Ezekiel, as he's drug off to Babylon, God calls him to be a prophet in Babylon. And so he begins prophesying to the people there in Babylon. Just a really unique ministry in Scripture. But he's taken off in that second wave of people. And then the third wave was the one that broke everybody. Because the Babylonians finally said, we've had enough. You're not doing what we want you to do. So we're just going to destroy your city. We're going to destroy your temple. We're going to destroy your wall. We're going to burn everything to the ground. And that's exactly what they did. And so 586 B.C. becomes a really mournful time in Israel's history. Let me read to you what 2 Kings 25, how it describes it. Verses 8 through 11. It says, It's the seventh day of the fifth month, the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. So they come to Jerusalem. This is as we would call it, 586 B.C. He burned the house of the Lord. Talking about the temple. This is the temple Solomon had built with the help of David collecting the stuff before. This had been the place God's people had come uh, daily to offer sacrifices, several times a year for the special feast. This is the holiest place on earth at the time. And they just burn it. Can you imagine being powerless as the Israelites Watching, wishing you could do something. I wonder if some people rushed forward trying to, trying to stop the men as they set fire to the temple, only to be beaten back or maybe even killed right there in front of the temple. had to be a painful thing to watch the temple of God burn to the ground. They burned the king's house. He couldn't do anything about it either. Burned all the houses of Jerusalem. Even every great house he burned with fire. Verse 10, all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. So while things are burning, the army is is knocking the walls down, doing whatever they have to do to tear down all the defenses. This city is not going to rebuild, they've decided. We're going to tear it down to its studs, and they're not going to be a problem for us anymore. Verse 11 says, the rest of the people who were left in the city... And the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the people, Nebuzaradan, if I'm saying that right, the captain of the guard, carried them away into exile. So this is the first wave. The next verse says that they left a few of the poor people there to keep the land, and that's all they left. So everyone has been pulled away from their home. Jerusalem has been burned. The city of David, the city of God, the temple of God has been burned. Probably difficult for us to really comprehend just how emotionally broken they must have felt. The only thing they had to lean on was there was a prophet named Jeremiah who was prophesying from God around this time and said, it's going to be 70 years. That was bad news and good news. The bad news was it's not going to happen quickly. The good news is God's not done. And he's going to bring you back home. That's all the hope they had. Because there was no outward evidence that anything was going to change. Uh, Babylon doesn't let people go back home when they destroy their city and drag them off to exile. Babylon doesn't give you mercy. If you want to try to rebuild, we'll just go back and destroy it again. It looked hopeless. 
the time you get to Ezra is about 30, or excuse me, about 70 years after that first wave of exile has begun. And just as the exile waves came in waves, the return home will come in waves also. And sure enough, just as Jeremiah prophesied, the book of Ezra begins with hope. God has not given up on His people, just as Jeremiah promised. Seventy years and you'll come back home. As hopeless as that must have seemed, I'd like to think there were some people of faith who stood on that promise, who started opening their eyes and saying, you know, it's been about 70 years. I wonder what God is up to. And here's what God did. Ezra 1.1, and you may want to open to Ezra chapter 1 with us. We're going to, there's some things I'll refer to that I won't put up here on the screen. I have most of the verses on the screen. But you notice how it starts. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. You notice it does not say king of Babylon because here's what had happened. God had allowed Persia to conquer Babylon, which seemed unthinkable at the time. Babylon is the most powerful nation on earth, but Persia has been rising and now there's a new kingdom that has conquered and the ruler's name is Cyrus. I cannot help but think when the Jews saw that Cyrus was leading the charge against Babylon, they must have become so joyful because the prophet Isaiah had said 150 years before this, God had prophesied through Isaiah, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. He will perform all my desire. He declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. 150 years before Cyrus is even doing anything, God had said, there's a guy named Cyrus, and he's going to help rebuild the temple. Now at this time, the temple wasn't destroyed. Jerusalem wasn't destroyed when, when Isaiah is making this prophecy. Things had changed so much, and there had to be this delirious joy in the Israelites when they saw that the Persian's king name was Cyrus. Remember what Isaiah said. Like, this is going to happen. This is really going to happen. As Isaiah went on to say, he's going to build my city. He's going to let the exiles go free without any payment or reward. He says in Isaiah 45, 13. So back in Ezra 1, 1, Cyrus, king of Persia, is now in charge. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. I underline that because I like that phrase. Uh, don't forget that God can do that. That God can stir up our spirits. Now, that doesn't mean God's going to make you do anything or anybody else do anything. I believe the Bible teaches from beginning to end we have choice, real choice, actual choice, whether to follow Him or not. But God can work, and God knows what we will respond to and what we won't. And sometimes... When God sees us settling in the wrong direction more than we should, sometimes God stirs us back up with some event of life. And here He stirs up the spirit of Cyrus. Here's what Jewish history says happened. There's a guy named Josephus. He wrote a lot of Jewish history. You'll hear people refer to him. He says that the Jews brought the prophecies of Isaiah to Cyrus and said, Our God told us a long time ago that you would come and that you would let us go back home and rebuild. And that maybe that's how God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, was through his word, through his prophecies. 
Um, if Josephus is right, that's pretty neat to me that they maybe brought the prophecies to him. But either way, God stirred up his spirit. He sent a proclamation through all the kingdom and put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. That sure sounds like somebody's told him about this prophecy, doesn't it? He said, God has appointed me to help rebuild this house, just like Isaiah said. He says, whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. He didn't have all that figured out. He'd learned, perhaps, that God is, is over everything. But to his knowledge, he's the God of Jerusalem. Verse 4, he says, Every survivor... Whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus gives this proclamation. God's appointed me to, to build the house. Everybody help the Jews out. Give them, give them silver and gold. And whoever wants to go back, go back and rebuild. And that's why Ezra and Nehemiah become the great rebuilding books of the Bible. Um, Ezra, as I've got here, to point out a couple things that happened then. So the second big thing we'll do, uh, two big things that happen in Ezra chapters 1 through 3 after Cyrus's proclamation. Number one, you have a large group that says, we want to go back. We want to go back to Jerusalem. It had been about 70 years since the first wave of exiles, but it had not been that long since the last wave. It had been about... 40 years since that last wave of exiles had come through. 40, 50 years since the last wave of exiles. And so there were people who remembered Jerusalem. They were still alive. Uh, you, you could have a 50 or 60-year-old person who had been a young child running around Jerusalem and had the memories of that city before it was burned to the ground. And so people go back, and, and verse 5 there, notice the phrase again, we're going to see it says, Then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred. There he goes again. God stirring up people's spirits, uh, letting them choose, but stirring up the opportunity to follow him more closely. And so they, they decide to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. These next few verses say that people gave them silver and gold to help them out. Cyrus even gave them the articles that had been stolen from the temple before it was burned. So you can take these back home. And so the people are now starting to go home. If you read through chapter 2, it's a long list of names. can be difficult just to read. Uh, but about 50,000 people as it adds up. Uh, a group about the size of Collierville, Tennessee starts heading back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city of God. So this large group. And uh, the leader at the time, if you want to join our, our Lads to Leaders Bible Bowl young people who are trying to learn some of these names, Sheshbazzar was the first leader. That is, if you're looking for baby names, maybe that's a good one. Sheshbazzar is, a, is, a, is the leader, the prince of Judah at the time, um, one of the ones that, that helps lead the people back. The second big thing that happened, oh, I'm glad I put this up here. I, I, I just wanted to point out, Again, just as we probably can't understand the emotional impact of Jerusalem being destroyed, 
we probably can't fully feel the emotional impact of getting to go back home. As Psalm 126 described it later, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. You, you feel the joy. When God let us go back home, there was laughter and singing and joy. I, I'll bet there was. One of those things I wish I, I could have seen. And um, just a great, a great event to go back home. The second big thing that happens is the rebuilding begins. A couple other names you might want to join our lads to leaders people in, in knowing. Zerubbabel, one of my favorite names in the Bible. I don't know, we don't hear a lot about, <clears throat> excuse me, about Sheshbazzar after that mention. In fact, some people wonder if Sheshbazzar and Zerubbabel are the same person with two different names. And maybe that's true. I, I don't know that I've fully decided on that yet. But, but Zerubbabel, uh, he becomes the, the leader of Jerusalem. And Jeshua is the priest of Jerusalem. You notice Ezra's not there yet. The book is called Ezra. He's not going to come for another 70, 80 years. Uh, Nehemiah is not there yet. He'll come around the time Ezra does, a little bit after that. Um, but at this point, Zerubbabel and Jeshua become the leaders of the rebuilding for your Bible trivia knowledge. And here's what they start rebuilding. First of all, the altar of God, which had no doubt had been burned with everything else. They rebuild the altar in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3. It says, When the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. I love the, the description of unity there. They gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, who's one of the priests, and Zerubbabel and his brothers arose and built the altar of God to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they begin to set up the altar. It says in verse 3, they were scared of the people of the land. I mean, they have no protection. There's no wall. There's no anything. Uh, but they're, they're starting anyway. They overcome that fear and begin offering the offerings to God. The second thing they resume is their worship. So the altar is placed first, and now they're beginning to, to worship God in all the ways they were supposed to in the Old Testament. We don't have animal sacrifices and other things from the Old Testament today. We're under the covenant of Christ today. Uh, the Bible teaches us in places like Hebrews 9 that when Jesus died on the cross, that began a new covenant. And, and we're no longer under the old covenant. We learn things from it, but we're not under it. Um, if you haven't studied that before, feel free to ask questions about that. But So they begin worshiping with these animal sacrifices that they were supposed to offer under the law of Moses at that time. They celebrate the Feast of Booths, verse 4 says, where they would build these little booths and live in them um, to remind themselves of the wilderness wanderings. They begin offering the, the burnt offerings daily as each day required, you see there in verse 4. And it says, afterward, there was a continual burnt offering. Also for the new moons, the festivals, uh, everyone giving their free will offerings. The worship to God is now restored in Jerusalem the way it was supposed to be. And then the last thing that's rebuilt here in these first few chapters is just a foundation, but it's a really important foundation. They lay the foundation of the temple. That temple that had been burned to the ground um, several decades before, now it's time to rebuild it. It's time to get things back to where they need to be. 
It says in verse 8, it was the second year in the second month. So perhaps they had taken time to settle themselves, build houses. I don't know what happened, but we got to the second year when they finally start. All right, now it's time. We started the offerings already, but now it's time to build the temple. And so they begin to do that. Verses 10 through 13, this is, a, this is a great scene in the Bible's history. It says, When the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood up in their trumpets with their trumpets, the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel, using those Old Testament forms of worship. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So it's almost like a groundbreaking ceremony. We just put the foundation down, and now we stop and we worship. But notice this in verse 12. Yet many of the priests and Levites... And heads of the fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy. Some of the older ones who had seen Solomon's temple before it was burned, they, they started crying. And I don't know that I fully know why. Maybe it was... Maybe it was the the rush of memories. Maybe remembering back to when they had worshipped God there at that place. Maybe it was remembering their parents or their grandparents had taken them to worship there. Maybe it was was just releasing the pain of seeing that that temple burn to the ground. And now now just the the joyful weeping that God is bringing us back and we're going to rebuild it all over again. Whatever it was, there's a lot of crying that happens here along with the shouts of joy. And verse 13 says, the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard far away. So mixing joyful shouting and joyful weeping all together at this great beginning, we're now starting to rebuild back in God's city in Jerusalem. The great rebuilding books of Ezra and Nehemiah have begun. I want to end this morning with three quick things that I hope we can take away from this first wave coming back home, coming back to start the rebuilding process after the difficult years that have come. Number one, one thing we notice here, God's amazing ability to bring events together. To say 150 years before all this, There's going to be a guy named Cyrus, and he's going to say, let's rebuild the house of God and let everybody go home. To say through Jeremiah, it's going to be 70 years, but then I'm bringing you back. To bring Cyrus, king of Persia, to conquer Babylon, who never would have let you go back home, comes out of nowhere, and all of a sudden the whole plan is set in motion, and we're able to go back. It's just amazing to see, to see God put the pieces together after a really difficult time. One of our favorite things about God, one of my favorite things about God is His amazing ability to bring events together. In fact, one of the great promises that Christians anchor in in difficult times is Romans 8, 28, where it says, we know, notice the confidence there, 
we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. He doesn't say everything is good. He says all things work together for good. God can bring them all together into this beautiful tapestry of His goodness. For, for you, I hope you remember those times. I hope you hang on to the times when you saw the pieces come together in a way that only God could have done. And maybe no one else from the outside would have been able to see that you saw how, they, how unlikely it was for the dots to be connected. But you knew that. Hang on to that. Because you're going to come to times when you wonder why things aren't going exactly like you want them to. You're going to go through times when you feel the struggle more than you feel the joy. And you're going to need to remember, God has done this before. God has connected dots that no one could have seen. God has brought events together and then all of a sudden there's, there's joy. Maybe even weeping joy, but there's joy because God has brought it together. For some people in this room, it's, it's how you became a Christian. God led you to the, meet the right person at the right time and your heart was stirred up a little bit and you had a choice to make and you decided, I want to follow Jesus Christ. For some of us in this room, it's a time of recommitment to God, that God brought the right things at the right time to stir our hearts up before they got too settled and, and, and too stuck in the wrong direction, and God gave us another chance. And we chose the right way, and God is blessed along the path. It may be coming out of a difficult time. Whatever your stories are, hang on to them, because God has this amazing ability to bring events together. Let us never forget that. Number two, I love the hopeful courage of returning home. That Psalm 126 description is great. We, we were like people in a dream. It, it seemed like a dream when God was bringing us back home after that terrible time we went through, being drug away. And now we're able to go back home and rebuild. We were singing. We were joyful. Uh, the hopeful courage of returning home. It's not always easy. It's not always easy to, to go back home, especially after you've really messed up. Jesus told probably the best-known story he ever told in Luke chapter 15 about the prodigal son. And people often look at that story as, as maybe, maybe a miniature of the whole Bible. The whole history of the world can be encapsulated in that story. We leave home, we realize sin is broken and empty, and if we find the hopeful courage, we're like the prodigal son who says, I will get up and go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And what we'll find is that God is ready to receive us. The hopeful courage of going back home. There will be times in your life where you sin and you fail. Maybe even times when everybody knows it. What I hope you won't do in those moments, I hope you won't stay there. I hope you won't say, well, I'm just going to try to keep hiding it. I'm just going to, maybe something will change one day. What I hope you'll do when you realize you're going in the wrong direction is have the hopeful courage to go back home to God. He's our home. He always has been. I hope we'll realize somewhere along the way that sin does not fulfill its promises, but God does. That God has never let us down, even though the world will, over and over again. May we find the courage to go back home. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've been going through a time period in life where you just haven't been going in the right direction. I pray God stirs up your heart with His Word. I pray you find the hopeful courage to say, I need to go back home to my Father. Then number three, I'm just interested to notice that every amazing journey begins with a single step. 
You probably heard that phrase before. I've tweaked it a little bit. But uh, every, every journey begins with just one step. Jerusalem would have its best days still ahead of it. The Jerusalem that had been burned to the ground, whose walls had been knocked over, who looked nothing like a place you would even want to live, much less have God's plan happen. But Jerusalem would be the place where Jesus would come to the feast every year with His family. The place where Jesus would eventually teach in the temple every year at the feast. Jesus would be crucified, paying the price for our sins. He would raise from the dead there. The church would begin there. Jerusalem's best days were still ahead of it. But it all started because a few people, according to the promise of God, were brought back home to Jerusalem. It took that first, here 50,000 people stepped forward in faith and said, I want to go back home. And, and it's slow steps, right? All we've got so far, we've got an altar, and we've got a foundation. And people are crying about the foundation. we, we only got a little bit going here. Uh, but, but great things would happen. They never would have happened if those first steps weren't taken. A few weeks ago, we were sitting around the house, and it was getting close to bedtime. I think Reese had already gone to bed, and, and the boys were sitting with me in the bonus room, and we're just flipping through random stuff on, on TV, and, um, and, and we stumbled on the Fellowship of the Ring movie, if you've ever seen that before. And the boys said, never seen that before. And I thought, man, I'm a terrible father. So we, we clicked on it real quick. I, I've only seen it a couple times, but some of y'all will know this much better than I will. But we watched about half, well past bedtime, should have done it, watched about half of Fellowship of the Ring. And one thing I noticed I'd never noticed before, if you know Fellowship of the Ring, it's the one with the Hobbit and the Ring of Power and all that stuff. Well, well the Hobbits are, are embarking on what they've been asked to do to take this ring away from the guy who's trying to destroy the world with it. And one thing I never noticed, they, they get to the edge of their little village, and it's called the Shire, if I get it right. And they get to the edge, and they just stop. And they say, you know, I've, I've, never, I've never gone further than this from home before. And the camera doesn't, doesn't say a lot about it, but just it focuses on their step, and they take one big step over that line. And, and I think the imagery that, that it's trying to get across, it just, it just struck me as we watched that together. I think the imagery it's trying to get across is none of these things happen without that first big step, that, that scary first big step that they had to take. And that first big step led to so many great things. And here, as the people of Israel are going back, that first big step out of Babylon, I don't know if it was scary or not, but it started so many amazing things. My question for us this morning, what step do I need to take that I haven't taken yet? You sometimes ask, how do people become people of strong faith? Well, it begins with that first step. And then they find that God helps and God's people help. And that step leads to another step and another and another. And soon faith is growing and transformation is happening. But it all begins with that first step. This morning, maybe you need to take a step of faith getting closer to God. Maybe that step is asking for prayers. If you'd like to talk with us privately, we would love to talk with you. We're trying to help each other follow the Lord. We're trying to help each other get to heaven. We'd love to talk privately and pray with you. Maybe you'd like to take a public step of faith. We're about to sing a song of invitation. And in this song, you'll notice it's a song about Jesus receiving us back. That whenever we come to Jesus, we find He receives us. He doesn't reject us. He doesn't tell us to go back. He receives us back home. Maybe you need to come before our church family and ask for prayers. 
Why not ask everyone to pray for you, to, to pray for forgiveness, to pray for strength, to pray for recommitment? We'd love to help you with that. Those we come in contact with that are not Christians, they often ask, what do I need to do? How do I become a Christian? What do I do? I think people find this chart helpful, so I try to put it up here pretty regularly. Here's what I think you'll find is a good summary of how you become a Christian in the Bible. And they're steps. They're simple steps, but they're the most important steps you'll ever take. You hear about Jesus, you believe in Jesus, and you make a commitment to repent, to change your life. When you've made that commitment to change your life, you confess your faith in Jesus and have your sins washed away in the waters of baptism. And as you rise from those waters of baptism, you rise as a Christian, someone forgiven, someone added to the kingdom of God. If you need to take that step this morning, we'd love to see you do that as well. If you need to take a public step of faith, you're invited to come to the front now.